Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. All right, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm joined by the founder of PadSplit, Atticus LeBlanc. Atticus attended Yale University and graduated with his BA in Architecture and Urban Studies. In 2017, he founded PadSplit, which is created to make homes affordable for the workplace. PadSplit takes one house or an apartment that is unaffordable and creates a shared living experience that is attractive, accountable, and affordable. PadSplit's concept was born out of the ATL Challenge Affordable Housing Ideas Competition, where they were named a finalist and grant recipient from J.P. Morgan Chase and Enterprise Community Foundation. Before PadSplit, Atticus helped co-found Striant Investments and Construction, which was a real estate investment and construction company. Founded in 2008 to purchase and rehabilitate distressed single-family, multifamily, and commercial properties throughout Metro Atlanta. We are pumped to have such a creative and entrepreneurial-minded guest. So Atticus, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Drew. Appreciate the opportunity. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have you. Uh, so we took our stab at understanding a little bit of your background and the, and the origin story, but in your own words, how did this thing get started? Tell us about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, all in all, I've had a pretty unconventional career path. But uh, this, this particular journey likely started uh, when I discovered in late 2007 that homes were a lot cheaper than they should have been. Uh, my, my previous career as a commercial broker had really hit the skids. I had uh, just had my first son with my wife. She had told me she was going to stop working. And uh, I only made 10 grand for the year in 2007. and <laughs> was pretty wow. clear that that wasn't going to work. So... Uh, saw that homes were a lot cheaper than they should have been, uh, took, uh, every, every little bit of money that I had, which wasn't much, uh, and, uh, anyone who would, who would trust me with theirs and started buying homes in 2008, uh, renting those out largely in town Atlanta. Uh, they were through the, uh, the housing choice, uh, program or, or section eight. So it was all very affordable. Uh, and in 2009, uh, because I was on the ground in these neighborhoods, uh, I understood exactly what was what was going on, kind of block to block, street by street, house by house. And there was a um, there was a rent by the room house next to one of mine with two guys, Otis and Mitch, and their house was being foreclosed. So uh, hmm. they were unfortunately going to be out on the street soon. Uh, Mitch came to me one day and said, hey, can I rent rooms in in your home uh, in, in the rental property that I had on the west side of town? And. Uh, it was really an aha moment for me, recognizing that here were folks who had, uh, they were on social security income, which is of course a, a federal federal program, uh, and they couldn't qualify for any housing option really anywhere. Uh, and then they wanted to rent rooms for me and I asked them kind of how, how that worked, what did they need and, and, and how would we do it? And uh, I also recognized that, well, wait a second, if, if each of them paid me $100 a week per room, then it would be net on net more profitable for me than than other traditional uh, rental options, hmm. and so it was both more affordable for them and more profitable for me. Uh, ended up buying a bunch of properties uh, over the next couple of years, uh, both single family and multifamily, owned and managed uh, about five hundred units over that period, and started buying commercial stuff. And the business really took off, but this initial concept had had never really left me and I, I was comparing the 
uh, the income statements of the various properties over over years and recognize that, uh, that this was really a unique solution then and it was operationally very intensive but uh, if you could solve those operational issues then it could really be something that scaled and so in 2016 uh, when I had reached my personal financial goals and wasn't worried about providing for my family anymore uh, had had three more sons by that point as well Wow. Uh, but I was really looking for for my next chapter as uh, how to how to create uh, a force for good in the world that was sustainable beyond my lifetime, and went back to to this model that I thought was really possible to do good and do well, and try to figure out or how do you scale this not just for uh, a a property development company but how do you make it available for anyone who has has space today, any, any housing provider in the country around the world uh, where they can they can develop or create housing that is both more affordable and more profitable simultaneously. And so that's mm -hmm. really the the origin story and kind of kind of goes goes from there. It's been a, been a wild ride since 2017, but that's that's when it started. Oh, man, I love it. What is the can you be a little more specific and help me understand what is the kind of blueprint? of what you're what you're doing sure yes yeah. so uh what what PanSplit does is uh, effectively we exist as a marketplace not unlike an airbnb but whereas airbnb just provides listings hosted by other people for vacation rentals uh we provide listings and services but but listings that are hosted by other people uh and they are trying to rent individual furnished rooms on flexible terms for longer term basis. So our, our minimum term is 31 days. So it's not a, a vacation rental. Right. Uh, but uh, but there is an enormous need for uh, singles in the workforce who cannot qualify based on income or do not have uh, a minimum deposit to get into a traditional apartment. They might not have a credit score. Um, and this provides a, a flexible living solution for those individuals. And that is a huge portion of, of the population and particularly the rental population mm. uh, in, in the United States. And uh, I mean, at, at its core, what, what we do is fill those rooms, kind of fill rooms quickly, keep them filled, make it a very seamless process that is about as easy as booking an Airbnb for the end user or the resident. Uh, then we collect all those payments uh, usually on a on a weekly basis or on a customized billing schedule that matches when they get paid by their employer. We remit those on a monthly basis to the host. And then we handle a lot of the customer service issues that that arise. Uh, but yeah, we are we're a technology company. So we're not a we're not a real mm. estate developer, uh, even though a lot of people think we are. Uh, we uh, we're we're basically comparable to the 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 long term housing equivalent of an Airbnb. That makes sense. So when you were first starting, it was with properties that you owned, but eventually it became much beyond that, uh, you know, properties you don't own that other people own yeah. that are using your marketplace to rent out a room. Exactly. Yeah. I, again, I mean, I go back to what, what I really wanted to do and, and my goal for this company was to, to create a legacy for good in the world and to ultimately solve this affordable housing shortage that we're facing and has only gotten worse in the time that I've been in the industry for the last 20 years. And to do that, I, I saw two models. 
one, you had like an invitation home to had 60,000 houses at the time, which was a lot of houses. But I knew that the shortage was around seven and a half million units. And so you look at Airbnb, which had six million. And I said, okay, well, if, if the goal is to solve the problem, I would be much more effective in trying to address it through a marketplace model where anyone anywhere can that has space can leverage the space to create more affordable, flexible housing choices for people that mm. need them, uh, as opposed to just trying to own everything and having a, a, a much smaller piece of uh, a, maybe a more profitable and sustainable business, but you, you wouldn't be solving the problem. Totally makes sense. What I'm curious about, you mentioned earlier, the heaviness of the operational side and logistics, I'm sure, sure to take it from idea to a functioning reality. What were some of the first things you had to tackle to actually get some traction and getting this off the ground? Yeah. So um, the, the biggest one early on was payments and, and processing and collecting payments. Uh, when, when I first started experimenting with shared housing in 2009, uh, I didn't ever want to collect cash. Uh, so it was always money orders. But I would have to physically go out to the properties at least every week, sometimes multiple times a week, go to a Dropbox, unlock the Dropbox, take the money orders out, and then go deposit them. Uh, clearly, that was not a scalable solution, but that's, <laughs> that, that was it. Like that was, that was what you could do. Uh, or you had to have it in an, an apartment complex where people could come to the office. But, um, but I, I knew we had to solve that problem. Uh, and fortunately, uh, there's just been huge advances in payments processing technology since then. Today, we are completely, uh, completely electronic payments. Now, most people, even though a large portion of our population does not have bank accounts, virtually everyone has at least a prepaid debit card where they get paid by their employer onto a prepaid debit card. Uh, and so mapping out all those electronic payments was, was a huge portion of it and making sure that each individual user, even if you had five or six bedrooms in a house, uh, could pay uh, on the day that they got paid. So if that's every Tuesday, okay, well, the technology has to figure out, okay, well, this person pays every Tuesday. Somebody else may pay every second Thursday. Somebody else may pay every Friday. Somebody might just pay once a month. Uh, and, and building out that piece of it was, uh, was the first major step. Even going about collecting the information of when they get paid, that feels like a logistical nightmare. Yeah. Well, they, well, they tell us, I mean, we don't, um, uh, if, if they want to pay the next day after they get paid, that's, that's fine too. But really it's just allowing each user to customize their own experience. Okay. Uh, that's, uh, that's the biggest thing that we do as, as a marketplace is just provide choices, right? Whether that is choices of when you make your payment or choices of where you want to live, or uh, when you change your job, you can move to another location uh, very easily and, and flexibly. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, the, the entire system of, of building a marketplace is about creating more choices for people and, and trusting that the most educated person to, uh, to be able to, uh, uh, decide what option is best for them is the person who's actually making that choice for themselves and, and giving them the freedom and independence to do so on their own. Uh, and that's going to lead to the best outcome. So uh, it's, a, it's a huge part of what we do. And really, as a company, the only thing that we can do is provide information and tools and, and the right incentives. How did you go about getting the first batch of 
you know, early adopters, the users, both listing yeah. on there, as well as those that are looking to rent and actually, you know, adopt and use your platform. I think the first thing I had to do is prove it. And, and the only way you can prove it is I was, I was maybe the, the least risk averse person. So, uh, experimenting with my own in inventory, uh, and converted one of my own houses. Uh, and then the next, the next group of, uh, of folks that were interested, I had them all tour my house and I showed them, all right, look, in June of 2017, I brought this house onto the platform. I had it filled within two weeks. Um, and you had some incredibly transformational stories of life impacts that came out of that initial group of people that moved in. One of my favorites was a woman named Tiffany who uh, was renting a, a junky extended stay motel room off of I-20 and in her own words was dodging drug dealers and prostitutes on her way to get to work as a night shift security guard wow. and started saving 600 bucks a month. Uh, and I think those things resonated uh, those were the early users on the resident side. And as Tiffany described, like I've never lived in a shared situation like this before, but this is the nicest house I've ever seen. Uh, and so creating a better product and a better user experience for those residents was the first thing. Uh, and consistently now 91% of our residents still say that they would refer a friend to, to live with us. And then for, for hosts to be able to offer their property, I toured them through, through this. I shared with them not just stories like Tiffany's and, and introduced them to the people that were living there, uh, but also said, hey, look, like this property is is netting twice as much as it was previously, while also creating these transformational life impacts. And if that sounds too good to be true here, let me show you. Uh, and we continue to, to do that today. And it's our biggest selling tool is just showing people the product, telling people the stories. Uh, and, and then, uh, informing them of, of the data that we've collected over time. Did you have to overcome the hurdle of people feeling comfortable with random strangers renting out space in their home? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, most of our units are, um, uh, are, are investor owned. So, okay. yeah, we, we have less of an issue there. Uh, but it's still, it's still a hurdle. I mean, I have rented a room uh, in my personal home for almost three years now. Uh, and for my wife, certainly that was a, that was a huge barrier, but uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like for, for investors, the, the motivation and incentive is pretty straightforward. It's, am I going to earn more income from this property than I would in a different strategy? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's why we focused on that particular beachhead. Um, but, um, for, um, for owner occupants, it's a different, it's a different value proposition yeah. and you have to build a lot more trust. We hope that we'll get there and we hope that there are a lot more people who will rent individual rooms in their house. Uh, and we're adding more custom, customizing customizable features uh, within the product that allows them to determine not just, okay, I want to rent to a stranger, but maybe it's someone from your job. Maybe it's someone from your church. Maybe it's your uh, brother-in-law's cousin uh, where you can break down the relationships so that it's no longer a stranger. And, and that makes a big difference as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do people have to go through a you know, vetting process of any kind to qualified to be Definitely. able to use the platform and that type of thing? Definitely. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's one of the biggest things that we do. I mean, I mentioned 
like the power of choice is is the first thing. The other thing is is trust. And I ask people, okay, well, what's the difference between hitchhiking and Uber? The answer is well, really nothing. But you trust the device in your hand to have some sort of background check uh, for the person driving that you're not just going to get into the back of a car with an axe murderer. Yeah. Uh, and so like building that trust in any marketplace is a huge, huge part of, of what everyone does for us. It's, yeah, they have identity verification. There's background checks of everyone. Uh, there's income verification. Uh, and so you're, you're trying to mitigate as much risk as possible. Uh, and then one of the benefits of a shared housing environment is you also have more eyes on that individual. And so right. when a potential issue arises, it's not just you know, 1v1, it's usually like four or five V1. And if you're hearing four or five different uh, points of information that say, hey, this this person is an issue or is causing an issue, then it's much easier to validate and, and intervene uh, when when necessary. Totally. I mean, I even think about like, at this stage, my wife is still hesitant to use like an Uber, you know, whereas I don't. I don't think twice about it. I use it so much for work and travel. Uh, but however sure. the growing comfortability is, it's still a barrier for her. It was like, I don't know who this yeah. person is driving and I'm just by myself. And I'm like, man, I don't, you do have to think about that, especially if you're the company building this platform and want people to adopt it. Right. It's that trust element. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, I, I wonder, I mean, if she gets in the back of a car with a taxi, uh, if, <laughs> if there's like a different trust element there, but uh, but yeah, it, it takes time and it takes a tremendous amount of effort to, to be able to do that. Yeah. What about scale? What was the, what was the light bulb moment that helped you all scale it from, you know, probably just a few users and a few proof cases to, to being much more widespread now? Yeah. Well, uh, happy, happy to say, uh, at least as far as I'm aware, we are the, the largest, uh, co-living marketplace that's designed around the workforce. Uh, we have about 5,500 units across the country right now. Wow. Um, you know, we had always planned for scale. I mean, again, like the the origin story of the company is I, I only wanted to do this if we could help solve the problem. And that that meant that you had to scale it. Uh, there, so there's not one individual thing. It's uh, very much kind of the, the Eric Reese school of lean startup where you you build, you iterate, you learn. Um, I had the, the benefit of a lot of experience in housing and in affordable housing and in even shared spaces generally. So I had a lot of experiential IP that, that had been built up over time. Uh, so not, not really one thing, but, uh, you know, certainly that payments infrastructure was, was a major one. Yeah. What's it been like for you as a founder, just personally going on the ride? Of oh business? man. Whew. Uh, it's been a doozy, been a doozy, Drew. Yeah, it's um, it's funny. I never envisioned myself as a CEO of a large company ever. Hmm. Um, I was uh, I was very content for most of my entrepreneurial career to be a one you know one man show or at most a, a, a ten person, fifteen person operation. Uh, and even then, it was it was usually at least two of us uh, yeah. that were running things. Um. It has been by far the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, and I think the most personal growth that uh, has almost been forced on me. 
you just you are in situations and forced to confront real costs, uh, both personally, professionally, and and for others. Um, that uh, it's it's not a natural motion, right? I mean, the, right. the act of being a CEO is not at all a natural motion, uh, and you you have to become uh, super resilient in in amongst a lot of adversity. Yeah, what was the most maybe unnatural or difficult aspect of that CEO role for you? Um, one of our core values is compassionate directness. Hmm. And that is really, really hard uh, to when, when you have to lay people off or when you have to let people go uh, or when you just have to give people really hard feedback that may be taken really personally. Uh, but you, you look at whatever the mission or vision of, of the organization is for us, the, the mission is pretty clear and we all are aligned around that. We're, we're trying to help solve the affordable housing crisis one room at a time. Uh, and we do that by leveraging housing as a vehicle for financial empowerment. Uh, and that is our North star. Uh, and you can have a lot of great people who, um, can align around that North star, but ultimately are, are not achieving what they need to achieve as quickly as they need to do it. Uh, they're not growing with the scale of the organization because when you're talking about exponential growth, uh, you could have a person who is perfect on day one, who is, um, uh, who is not competent at that particular role in 180 days. Yeah. Uh, and, and being willing to have those compassionately direct conversations that, it treats those folks with empathy while at the same time acknowledging that what's best for the business is, is making a change. Mm. Uh, and those are incredibly difficult conversations. Uh, and sometimes you have to have those, uh, those conversations internally as well and understand what you can do, what you can't do. Uh, and uh, what are the pieces you need to build around you and rebuild around you constantly. Is there a way you've come to think about those conversations that's helped you be more willing to have them and maybe even navigate them emotionally a little better than, feeling so bad and wanting to avoid it so much? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, come back to my, uh, to that mission and, and the vision and, and the core values constantly mm. every week, sometimes every day, uh, and every decision that I'm making. Uh, and without that foundation, it becomes, uh, incredibly burdensome, uh, personally. And, and when you're not, it's easy to, um, I think it's easy to get caught up in the number of, of really difficult decisions you have to make, but, uh, but it's a lot easier to sleep when with each decision, you, you know, that you are, uh, following your core values and your North star mm. and, and almost impossible without that. It makes so much sense. Like whether it's faith or philosophy or business core values, having some kind of code that you believe in doesn't take care of a hundred percent of the decisions, but I imagine about 90% of them are clear to see if it's following that sure. or not. And like you said, it yeah. helps oh, you make the yeah. decision a little quicker, sleep a little easier. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. I, I mean, they're all still really hard. Yeah. Right? You're, you're making really hard decisions that impact people's lives. Uh, but, but yeah, you, you need that code in, to, to follow and, and to be able to sleep at night and live with yourself and, uh, and, and justify over the long term that you made, you made the right call. Uh, and where, 
anytime I, I regret a decision, it's largely because I feel like we've strayed from those things. Mm. Uh, and even if you're making really hard decisions, otherwise, uh, so long as you're, you're keeping that mission, vision values at the forefront, uh, you, you feel at least some solace in knowing that it was, it was the right call. Yeah. The other part of the decision that I hear often, and I've experienced myself as a founder is the analysis paralysis where you just sure. get stuck on a certain strategic vision or a, a gut call on whether we go this way or that way, say yes or no. Uh, have you experienced that where you just feel stuck with analysis paralysis? And if so, how do you move past that? I'm, I've never felt that true. You know, I've always just been <laughs> just always clear and confident. In your yeah. Decisions. Just always, I just always had the answer. Uh, yeah, of course, man. It's, um, I, I don't, I don't know that the process for me is, is different though. Um, I mean, we have deadlines, right? You, you've got deadlines, you know, that you have to make a call. Uh, and in, in the same way that I rely on the, the mission, vision values, in thinking about what decision to make, it's also informing when the best time is too. Sometimes, uh, yeah. and I've been I've been an entrepreneur for seventeen years, so I'm, I'm certainly comfortable operating in the gray uh, and making choices uh, without knowing what's going to happen and, mm -hmm. and accepting the risks of those uh, and understanding like I could be wrong. Uh, but, uh, but you know that a choice has to be made. And somebody told me once there, there are no good choices. There are only choices. Mm. Uh, and, and I believe that, uh, in, in most cases it's true. Yeah. Staying on just you a little bit longer. Cause a lot of the people we have listening here are founders and leaders of, of at least departments or not organizations themselves. Are there any habits or things that you do kind of consistently that you found to just either be anchoring or, you know, productive for you, um, personally or professionally? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I journal every day. Hmm. Uh, just, uh, just write something. I have a little journal app in my phone, um, and have, have written every day consecutively for two and a half years at this point. Uh, that's, that's been a big one. And particularly cause in my phone, I can go back on the same day, a year, two years, three years ago and recognize either, uh, how I, how I have grown personally or, or decisions I wish I would have made sooner, uh, issues that I've been struggling with. I was struggling with then that I'm, uh, I think, oh man, I've grown so much since that point. Uh, or there are little reminders of, okay, like th the situation today is not that different from, from a situation uh, a year or two or three years ago. Uh, and so that's been, that's been one that's been really grounding and just helping process thoughts, hmm. uh, not dissimilar from meditation. I wish I meditated more regularly than I do, but, uh, but yeah, that just journaling has, has been the biggest for me, uh, and running, uh, exercising in general. Is journaling primarily a way to get confusion out of your brain and onto paper and make some sense of it? Like what's the main value for you there? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a big part of it, uh, and just uh, cementing or solidifying, if you will, uh, thoughts of the day. Uh, what you're what you're grateful for, uh, what you think you could have done differently. Um, trying to process whatever struggle you may be you may be going through on any particular day, uh, or just a memory that you want to uh, 
you want to come back to at, at mm. some point in time. Um, it's, it's all of those things. Is it same time every day? I wish no, uh, I, I can't, uh, I can't quite pull that off. Uh, I, I, I usually try to do it in the morning, but, um, but yeah, it doesn't, doesn't always work out that way, especially when I've got to take my boys to swim practice at five forty in the morning. Oh God, that sounds terrible for everybody involved. Um, is there a format that you use? Is it just free, free flowing, free thought, or do you follow like, I always do what I'm grateful for, what I'm pro like, is there a format to the, to it? Yeah. Always, always try to, uh, to make a note of, uh, of what I'm grateful for. And then any, any big to do's like if I've got and try to limit it, it's not, it's not a checklist. It's not a punch mm -hmm. list. Uh, but if I have, uh, two to three big decisions or, uh, major things that I want to accomplish that day. Uh, so what, it, you know, what were my learnings from yesterday? Uh, what am I grateful for? And uh, how am I going to apply that today? Cool. That totally makes sense. And then, uh, you mentioned running and exercise. That's been a somewhat of a, a consistent topic on here, but I'm curious for you, what role does that play? Why, why is that important for you? Uh, yeah, I think just getting anxiety out and, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a huge impact on just sleeping generally as a founder, uh, to, to keep you from waking up and staying up at, at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's pretty pragmatic, but I, I mean, I notice when it's been too long since I've been exercising, uh, but yeah, running is, is super simple. I only started maybe seven years ago, but, uh, you get a pair of shoes and shorts and, and you're good to go. And, uh, you can just. You can start to process things. I, th I think it's it's helpful mentally uh, in the moment, but but certainly long term, uh, and just getting some of the stress and anxiety out, and getting outdoors and putting yourself in nature to, to whatever degree you can. I love that. I mean, same for me. Running it always represented either punishment or progress towards some goal, right? Like it's either you know in sports it felt like punishment. Like when you got in trouble, you know, sure. I was told to go run. And so I had that connotation with it or the other was you're trying to get, you know, better in shape or you're trying, which is all great. But for me, what made it a consistent habit was understanding the mental benefits for me, you know, that like moving your body grounds, your mind helps me get clarity quicker on things. Sometimes I don't even have to run. It's just a brisk walk, you know, and like sure. just getting, like you said, even getting outside, especially now work from home. You can feel trapped yep. in the same place. Like you just been here all the time. There's no separation between work and life. And man, just a, my wife was always like, why do you always go to the park instead of like our neighborhood? You could walk around our neighborhood. I'm like, cause it's still here. <laughs> like I need to go <laughs> somewhere else, you know? Um, yeah. Do you, do you feel that as well? Oh yeah, definitely. I, it, it, as you were saying that, I was thinking, uh, I mean, heck, especially now that I'm, I'm working from home, our entire team works remotely. Um, it's, uh, it's a huge benefit just to, to have a drive on occasion. Yeah. Uh, and, and just give yourself some time to, to process, uh, and, and sit with your thoughts or, or be bored. Um, cause there's just, there's so much stimuli that's, that's coming at us at any given time, uh, whether it's from your phone or your computer or what have you. And yeah, yeah. Love, love just getting out there, whether it's on a run or, or even a drive. Uh, yes. I mean, uh, this is 
relevant because it's come up several times in this with people experiencing either hybrid or fully working from home. What they missed were some of those transition periods, you know, mm -hmm. where you got to transition out of home to work and the time you got to slowly transition in the car and then vice versa on the way back. And so for me, what's helped is I go to Starbucks, even though I know I'm wasting six bucks. Like I get it. Everyone that's listening, I could do it at home. I've got the coffee maker, but it's worth it to me to spend 30 minutes to an hour at that Starbucks and be around other people. That's when I do sure. my journaling and my reading. For some reason, it helps me to be kind of in that chaotic environment with my headphones on. And then I get to come home and it feels like I had some kind of like transition from waking up to starting my day. And then at some point I'll go on a run or go to the gym. And those are like the two, yeah. two little, they don't take long, but little bits of breaking the day up some. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I totally get it. I'm, uh, uh, it's not Starbucks for us anymore because ours closed, but uh, uh, Banjo Coffee in Avondale States on occasion. I love it. For me, when I was in your area, it was, uh, is it Cacao or is that the one that's near me? Dang it, is it in downtown Oakhurst? The little coffee shop that's uh, in downtown Kavarna. Kavarna. Yeah, yes. Kavarna, st still there. That was that was my spot. We were close to Kavarna, yeah. and I would just go there and, and work to get around people. But uh, literally, I have a friend today who's who went out of a traditional job, is doing an entrepreneurial journey, and my most simple advice to him was like, dude, you just got to go work from a coffee shop for a little bit. Yeah. Like, you're getting too in your head because you've been home all day, and like... You just go do any of the stuff you're not doing live, like talking to someone or whatever, get out, man, like soak in the energy of other people and, and just little things like that have gone a long way. Um, on the, on the internal side of things, uh, what's the size, like how, what's the size of the team right now at Padsplit? Uh, 135 right now. Good Lord. That's a big team. Uh, it is. Yeah. Was that, was that a challenge? I mean, what it would seem like for me is there's different like stages of the company, depending on the size. Like there's that early organic stage where we all kind of know each other. And then you get to 30, 40, 50 people. And you're like, I didn't even know we hired that person. And there's kind of sure. different stages. Have you experienced it like that? You know, it's, it's been different. Um, I don't know how big we were when we went fully remote at the beginning of the pandemic, but it's, um, I tell you, it's it's more seamless in in a remote environment than hmm. than in person. Uh, you just, of course, you're like your my office doesn't change, right? I'm I'm still in my house every day, and so I still see just me. Uh, and even when I'm I'm still looking at the same screen, regardless of if there are ten people or a thousand that are that are on the screen. Um, so it, it's. Um, yeah, I'd say the biggest thing is just the reliance on managers uh, to to manage their own teams, and uh, of course, you have to be much more intentional about communication and yeah. and what messaging gets out where. Um, it's, it's why I, I have come back and I'm so intentional about the the mission, vision, value stuff, uh, is because at least you can make sure that you have alignment on on those things. Yeah. Uh, and it, it just makes those communications a lot easier because uh, there are thousands of decisions being made every single day that you're never going to know about uh, and, and trying to build that that common set of values and, and decision making processes, I think is one of the few things that you can do as a CEO. Um, but uh, it's 
Yeah, certainly different. Again, I, 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 I always figured out oh, I'm not nearly type A enough to be a, C, be a, a CEO of, of, of a large company. Have you found, have you found that the, uh, most important use of, of your time is different now than it was earlier in the company? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, in the, in the early stage of the company, you're doing everything right. Uh, if, if you don't show up and you don't do the actual things to turn the crank, it's going to die. Uh, yeah. Whereas at some stage, I definitely, I relate to uh, the, the term chief emotional officer. And I, I certainly, I mean, that became a huge part of my job. Fortunately, I, I, I like that part and have no problem being the, the chief emotional officer generally. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you go from doing to managing and then the, the management stages change over time as well as, as the organization grows. Uh, and sometimes that can happen really quickly. How do you see your role right now? Um, you know, today there's a lot going on in, in the broader market. Uh, we are in a state of flux. We're as a company, uh, I'm sure you've heard the term kind of peacetime CEO, wartime CEO. Uh, we're in a transition from peacetime to wartime, just, just looking mm -hmm. at the market opportunity that's ahead of us and, and the conditions and the fact that, look, venture funding is really not unlikely, uh, here in the, in the foreseeable future. So we need to batten down the hatches, uh, and, it, it, make sure that we are, uh, we have a, an extremely motivated group of people who uh, are are being held accountable to the KPR, KPIs and the OKRs that, that we're pushing on, um, realign on, on some strategic initiatives. So today it's reorganizing, rallying the troops, um, and, and, recommitting to some core strategies, uh, that, that I think will, will ultimately decide whether we live or die as a company. Um, yeah. and like, yeah, don't, I, I don't want to kind of dance around it. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think a lot of CEOs, uh, across the country are, are have in a similar state right now. Um, and it, fortunately for us in, in a business that is very resilient because I mean, People need affordable housing in every market. Uh, the current market cycle is just as likely to be tailwinds for us as it is headwinds. Uh, but it's it's really up to us at this point, and uh, always want to be in this position to to control our own destiny. And I, and I think we're in that position today, uh, and and want to maintain that position. What have you found to be most effective in the aligning and? energizing the team, like you mentioned? Um, it depends. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a huge rah-rah guy, to be honest with you. Um, I, uh, I like stories, uh, particularly if they're true stories. Uh, authenticity is a, a huge thing that I appreciate about our company. And if there's, there's one, overarching description of the people that, uh, and, the, and the culture that we've created, I think it's, it's, it's authentic. Um, and 
and for me, it's just, it's telling it like it is and, and saying, okay, look here, here are, here's the real situation. Here's, here's where we are. Here's where we need to go. Uh, and here's why it's really, really important to do. Uh, and, and being vulnerable, uh, mm. with, um, with where I am, uh, in, in evaluating whatever that goal happens to be and anticipating that, uh, we have a, a really strong team that, that can get us there. Uh, and, and just, I think just laying it out, you know, putting, putting the facts out there and, uh, acknowledging that if you hire the right people who are aligned with your mission and values, then, uh, then they're going to get it done. Heck yeah. Last question. And then I'll let you go. I love to do, know what people are learning, what they're reading. Is there anything that you, um, is just a particular book could be personal, could be business. Doesn't matter, uh, that you find yourself recommending the most. Uh, Atomic Habits is by James Clear is probably the one that I recommend the most. Uh, I also just finished Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, which I would absolutely recommend for every CEO. Uh, hmm. And then if if you haven't ever read um, uh, Lean Startup by Eric Reese, that's that's like kind of the Bible for just starting any business, I think, right now and, and has been Heck for yeah. Can you give me- 15 years. Can you give me just a, a few sentence description of the hard things about hard things? Uh, be yourself. Like that's it. Yeah. Be, be, be true to yourself, be true to your values and, uh, accept that, uh, you may fail. Like you may fail, this may fail. Um, and there are millions of people around the world that are walking parallel paths but it is, it is a very lonely road. Uh, the, the best description that, um, that I've heard of being a CEO, he gives in the book, is talking about like the connecting point between two, two pyramids, one that is inverted, that is your uh, external stakeholders, a la your, your investors and people that are uh, investing in you to, to go achieve some objective. Uh, and then you have the pyramid below, that is your customers and your staff and everyone who's who's looking up at you uh, and, and expecting you to perform. And, and you, you are the single point of connection between those two pyramids. Uh, mm-hmm. There are a lot of people in that position, but it doesn't make it any less lonely. And so when you're making those hard decisions, you need to have a North Star that, that you're coming back to because um, otherwise it's, it's, a, it's a pretty crushing burden. Beautiful. Well, Atticus, my man, thank you for taking time being here, sharing your story and your wisdom. I'm glad this company exists. I'm glad there's people like you out there uh, doing good in the world. And I'm excited to see what happens for you all in the future. Awesome. Well, uh, well, thank you so much, Drew. I really appreciate the opportunity again. Yeah, it's been, been great chatting with you. Yes, sir. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.